pluralist coalition of the forces of capitalism or plutocracy with the forces of democracy in American politics is the constant companionship of the, of the expanding wilderness frontier. Williams thus stands the Turner frontier on its head, correcting it. I add that another incognate effect of the frontier in American economic development was to preserve the entrepreneurial option long after the arrival of the vast monopoly structures which tend to consume entrepreneurs. In the states whose political economic histories Marx studied, for example, the frontier was never the factor that it was in America, except as America itself was Europe's Wild West. The rugged individuist self-made rich man, the autonomous man of power, the wildcatter, began to drop out of sight, to lose presence as individuals type and class with the rise of the current day computer-centered monopoly corporate formations. The tycoon entrepreneur is of course disappearing as a type in America too, at least as a political force in national life. The Hughes empire at last has been corporatized. Old man Hunt is dead. His sons are bringing Harvard Business School rational bureaucracy to the operation. But that only makes it all the more curious that political power continue to emanate from the type and the person, the image and the reality, the ghost, perhaps, of a creature like Hughes as late as the second victorious presidential campaign of Nixon. Why should the cowboy tycoon have persisted so long as a political force, competent to struggle against the biggest banking cartels for control of the levers of national power? As others have argued, the frontier was a reprieve for democracy. We may note here that it was also a reprieve for capitalism as well, whose internal conflicts were constantly being financed off an endless seeming input of vast stretches of natural riches, having no origin in capitalist production. All that was needed was for the settlers to accept the genocidal elimination of the native population, and a great deal became possible, a great deal. The Purple Mountains, the Fruited Plains, and generation after generation of American whites were able to accept that program. The Indian Wars won the West. The railroad and highways were laid. The country was resettled by a new race, a new nation. The energies of expansion consumed the continent in about two centuries, pushing on to Hawaii and Alaska. There is no way to calculate the impact of that constant territorial expansion on the development of American institutions. There is no way to imagine those institutions apart from the environment created by that expansion. It is a matter our national standard or standard national hagiography paints out of the picture, though we make much of the populist saga aspect of the pioneering, never quote, conquering of the West. How can we congratulate? our national performance for its general democracy and constitutionalism without taking into account the background of that constant expansion. We do not teach our children that we are Democrats in order to expand forever and Republicans on condition of an unfrozen Western boundary with unclaimed wilderness. To the extent that the American miracle of pluralism exists at all, we still do not know how miraculous it would be in the absence of an expanding frontier, its constant companion till the time of the Chinese Revolution. And I mean, you know, I think, yeah, he's right that it casts like a very long um, shadow. He also says that it's like now that he when he says some nice things about China, basically that like the success and then successful defense from 1950 to 1975 of the Asian revolutionary nationalist campaigns against further Western dominance in Asia, China, Korea, Vietnam, means that all this has changed. What was once true about the space to the West of America is no longer true and will never be true again. There will never be a time again when the white adventurer may peer over his Western horizon at an Asia helplessly plunged in social disorganization. In terms of their social power to operate as a unified people and in the assimilation of technology, 
ideology, the Chinese people are, since 1950, a self-modernizing people, not colonials anymore. And instead of a Wild West, Americans now have a mature common boundary with other moderns like ourselves. Not savages, not redskins, not reds, only modern people like ourselves in a single modern world. This is new this for is us. This is very interesting in light of like post 9-11 yeah. uh, it really is because, like yeah, I, I yeah. if only that were still true they managed to turn the clock back on that I guess mm-hmm, so they yeah. managed to like re, yeah, revitalize it I think that was thinking on his part uh, I think it because, was I think it yeah. was uh, yeah and also this is written like probably right before Mao died so uh, mm-hmm. he was referring to Maoist China and their achievements uh, before you know uh, big boy Dang uh, came in and uh, did what he did um, <laughs> and also yeah the idea that I mean, I guess in a way he is still correct about uh, all three of the countries, Vietnam, Korea, and China, that none of them have, like, I would even say China, it's one thing to say China has, like, adopted a path of, like, collaboration and revisionism and capitalism, whatever, but, like, I don't think the U.S. necessarily, like, beat China or, like, turned it into a vassal state or whatever or destroyed it. Mm-hmm. Like, China still exists as, like, an independent polity, if you will, um, and mm-hmm. America has been forced to, like, trade with them instead of colonizing them, basically. Like it's it's better than nothing, but uh, yeah. And then you have like Vietnam, who we also trade with, even though we failed to like you know destroy their revolution. And then Korea, we just got BTFO'd, and they took the pill low. They're never giving it back, and we just like have to suck it. Which is kind of interesting that Trump, <laughs> the cowboy president, like buddied up to Kim Jong Un. I'm not yeah. sure how that fits into the paradigm, but uh, the, the, who knows? It's not like you get a cowboy playbook if you get elected. No, I think that it could have been some cowboy entryism really... going on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you know, there's some again, like I don't feel like these like, uh, you know, precisely map onto everyone. I think that, you know, Bush H.W. Uh, that is like is someone who kind of like confounds the classification like fully yeah. but i think he's that like a day walker uh, you know in, in a true dialectic you know there's always influence between the two sides they're not like sort of starkly uh, mutually exclusive but i think like just before the portion you read is something interesting uh, that's relevant like a longer sort of uh quote from quigley uh that's sort of relevant to what we were talking about earlier where he kind of you know he talks about in a footnote some of the civil war stuff but also like his uh sort of more granular uh paradigm of uh, the Yankee cowboy dynamic in uh, the, his own current context. So he says, uh, Quigley is the author of a huge book about the contemporary world, Tragedy Hope, you know, to which I will return <laughs> in chapter two. I begin my debt to Quigley year by borrowing the following observation from his summary, noting that since 1950, a revolutionary change has been occurring in American politics. Quigley says this transformation involves, uh, quote, a disintegration of the middle class and a corresponding increase in significant by the petty bourgeoisie at the same time that economic influence of the older Wall Street financial groups has been weakening and been challenged by new wealth springing up outside the eastern cities, notably in the southwest and far west. He mm. continues, These new sources of wealth have been based very largely on government action and government spending, but have nonetheless adopted a petty bourgeois outlook rather than the semi-aristocratic outlook that pervades the Eastern establishment. This new wealth, based on petroleum, national, natural gas, ruthless exploitation of natural resources, uh, the aviation industry, military bases in the South and West, and finally on space with all its attendant activities. This is very interesting, you know, in light of what we see, like now, you know, you mentioned Elon Musk. Uh, totally. Has centered in Texas and Southern California. 
Its existence for the first time made it possible for the petty bourgeois outlook to make itself felt in the political nomination process instead of the run-rewarding effort to influence politics by voting for a Republican candidate nominated under the Eastern Establishment influence. By the 1964 election, the major political issue in the country was a financial struggle behind the scenes between the old wealth, civilized in cultures and its foundations, and the new wealth, virile and uninformed, arising from the flowing profits of government-dependent corporations in the Southwest and the West. So I thought that yeah, was very interesting of, to point out the the massive yeah. like state subsidy via the yeah. defense industry of like these entire regions, really. Like Texas and Southern mm. California, that's very, you know, pension kind of a territory there of like Orange County and Lockheed and Hughes and like NASA and all these that, you know, Huntsville, Alabama and Florida. And yeah, also like it does. I mean, I don't know. Like you think that that kind of um, that that shouts like Elon Musk to you? Uh, well, you know, thinking about like the uh, interest in space and how that's, you know, moved to he's kind of like the uh, uh, huge person uh, involved in space now. I mean, it kind mm-hmm. of like moved solely to the private sector for a while. But I think that he's like very much integrated with, uh, you know, uh, public. Oh, yeah. Funding. He's, he's uh, like know, largely so. bankrolled, I think, off like pen- DOD contracts to launch yeah. satellites mm-hmm. into space and things like that. So that's kind of still his bread and butter. Like you can't really yeah. separate these guys from it's like you know amazon running the cia's like cloud computing you know service and things like that yeah so They're the mention of like space you know especially yeah I think another that, frontier yeah he, i well, yeah exactly uh and he even makes that uh comparison but i think yeah he represents like the true like cowboyification or the the hypertrophies cowboyification of space uh you know and he really is like a true space cowboy in a yeah, way, was, like, <laughs> with this, like, you know, naive attitude, like, you know, towards the whole, like, uh, I saw something on Twitter of, like, all this, like, debris, like, scour- like scattered, or, like, all over, like, you know, someone's, you know, outside where they lived or something, like, uh, you know, it was, like, a, a road, but also, like, a habitat, you know, for animals, and there's just, mm-hmm. like, all this, like, you know, like, junk from, like, his busted-up rocket or whatever, just, like, you know, strewn everywhere, and, like, people in the, com- you know, like the, the the original tweet was saying something like you know oh thanks for like you know blocking the road and like destroying all these animals like you know habitats and the people in the comments were like he has done more to like reach the human potential of space you know he's like he's turning us green and you know it's like and people are like well how does like the, how do the rockets help fight global warming and they're like well they don't but it's just important <laughs> it's just important to go to space because of yeah, like dreams so and imagination escape. you know yeah exactly uh, uh they just all want to uh, go to mars in a bucket and live they want to go to mars in a bucket and live on the red planet and worship shaitan but uh anyway uh uh, anyway he does say uh you know in a footnote he notes like you know that this is like a new configuration but that there you know there always is a power struggle theory of some kind uh from the beginning and there's always been a split at the top he mentions uh, the uses of anti-slavery which is uh you know i guess Mm. george m frederick and reviewed it or he uh, he wrote a review entitled that uh, of David Brian Davis's book, The Problem of Slavery, and, you know, the summary of Davis's book uh, via Fredrickson, mm-hmm. via Oglesby, is uh, the cost of nation of the United States was not merely a sectional compromise, but also a compact between two distinct elites, a northern capitalist class that increasingly recognized the advantages of a free labor system and a southern planter class already implicitly committed to the preservation and extension of slavery. 
Hence, the United States seemingly emerged from its revolutionary period without a national ruling class. It was, in fact, a federation of two regional ruling classes. So that's the mm. parallel that he makes, although like not necessarily drawing like a, a genealogical link between you know the cowboys and the slave elites. You know, it's uh, yeah, well, like it's still the same it, fragmentation it, of the ruling. Yeah, class. it's interesting in a, in a certain kind of way. It's like they the southern elites. I mean, they weren't entirely vanquished, but they were kind of for they were definitely taken down a notch and then forced to like uh kind of reorient to a new system and in a way the western in the early by the early 20th century really like the second most powerful faction which was kind of had overlap with the southern the older southern planter elites but was like not exactly the same uh was the western tycoons and it almost i mean definitely oglesby kind of focuses more on it's like the the southwestern and the northeastern are kind of uh and then you know in the middle of the country maybe it's a little more uh fluid or whatever but those are the two most powerful blocks and so mm-hmm. yeah it wasn't a direct line per se from i don't know defense contractor like real estate tycoons in you know southern california like coming mm-hmm. straight from the 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 postbellum south or whatever mm-hmm. a lot of times they were they were just like primitive accumulators or con men like john d rockefeller's dad or you know just like some a bunch of daniel Plainviews coming out there who you know got that that first movers advantage right or the or the early adopter advantage because that's really where that's really if you want to mm-hmm. fast if you want to like hop in the fast lane and get a lot of power in this capitalist system very fast you find a new untapped market where you could like primitively accumulate before anybody else gets there. It's just like if you bought 10,000 Bitcoin in 2010, like you would be like a billionaire now, you know, it's like a, that kind of thing. But they're, they're always trying to like come up with whether, and I'm sure the same thing applies for space, it applied for the internet, like electronics, et cetera, et cetera. And certainly for like land, real estate in general. Uh, but yeah. For access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminal jihad. You found that buckle in a pawn shop, can't two-step across this floor. Them boots ain't ever seen the mud, can't be what you're looking for. He's got a half-assed smile and fake southern drawl, he's dressed up like the Marlboro Man. He's never backed in a box, dropped in a shoot, and he's never rode for a brand. Cause he ain't a cowboy, he ain't a plowboy, he's just a city boy in disguise. And he's never drove a tractor, maybe that's the kind of man you're after. And he can't saddle up no horse, so he ain't ever gonna ride away. And I'm a saddle sore puncher and a buckle I want, sure to break your heart one day.